Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that as we read through the book of Acts, we see the way in which the early church expanded and the gospel went forward with such great power. Not because of the particular individuals who shared the message, but because of the inherent power of the message itself and the work of your spirit in the lives of those who heard it. Your spirit is alive and active in this world today and Lord we give thanks that your word that we are looking at now is the same word of God. And Lord we pray that your spirit might transform and work within us to do the very things that your word was given to encourage us, to correct us and to help us to become more like your son. Help me to speak clearly. I need your help. I am only a messenger of the things that you have already written down and declared to us. Keep me faithful in the things I say and protect me from saying things that might be presumptuous. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, back in 2012, prior to having children, Sarah and I went on a holiday to the USA. It was a three-week holiday where we tried to cram in way too much stuff. Now, I've often said a number of times that I have the gift of sleeping I could sleep on rocks on an incredible angle, no troubles whatsoever, but sitting up and sleeping, as in aeroplanes, not my specialty, not one I can do. So we had a really long flight, uh, Melbourne to Los Angeles, I think 20 minutes max I would have clocked up, get a shuttle bus to the hotel that was staying out that was kind of within walking distance to Disneyland. We had a half an hour nap, went out to Disneyland for the night, Then we had a shuttle bus picking up outside the front of the hotel the next morning at 7 o'clock in the morning to go off to Universal Studios. That was the nice, relaxing, you know, start that we had to this holiday. There was no feet up on balconies taking photos to put up on Instagram or anything like that. But as we arrived at Universal Studios, tired, worn out, we'd pre-purchased our tickets, but there was an optional extra. You could pay between $79 and up to about $150 extra to get what they called an express pass or a VIP experience where if you had this particular tag, when you go to any of the rides or attractions, there was a separate line for you and you got priority. And I thought, well, I've already got a ticket, but we've got a pretty tight schedule as you've already heard. Maybe we should invest extra money, but then there's the the tight part and it's like, nah, Let's just do it. So we didn't pay the extra money and we went in and it was quite a quiet day there. In fact, I think it's fair to say that pretty much every attraction and ride that we went to, we either got on straight away or we got on the very next turn. Yet they were quite happy to get me to pay maybe a 100 bucks for something that would give me no better privileges than what I had already paid. When we think about how is a person saved, you often hear the expression, we are saved by grace through faith. Grace meaning a word, meaning a gift you receive that you haven't earned. But even today, you'll often hear people talk about extra things that they think that you need to do if you are going to be a real, genuine, saved Christian. 
In some circles, like particularly maybe in an AOG church, they might say, you need to have a second experience. You need to have a baptism in the Spirit and you need to speak in tongues, which incidentally is not what the Bible says. Or someone might say, you must get baptised, only then are you saved. Or you must become a member of the church, or then, and only then are you saved. Or you must have at least one person you've led to Christ, and only then is there proof that you're really saved. Now, some of those things, without the exception of the first one that I mentioned, may be things that you might expect to be the outflowing work of someone who is genuinely saved, but they're not things that makes a person saved. A person is saved when they place their trust in Jesus Christ. If they died that day and they hadn't been baptised, they weren't a church member, they hadn't led anyone to Christ, they're safe. They haven't missed out on something. But you'd be surprised how many times I've entered into conversations with people who say, you must have something else. But we need to acknowledge as we look at this passage, while it's pretty straightforward to us, it was a little bit more complex for the church in the first century. Because for around 1,500 years, the law of Moses was the go-to place to find out how do God's people relate to God. The books of the Old Testament, the, the laws, the Ten Commandments, all those things, they were the ways by which you followed those things in your relationship with God. Certainly throughout the Old Testament, primarily God is working with the nation of Israel. But even then there were people who were outside ethnic Israel who came part of the community of God's people. Uh, they might have had certain restrictions of things they could do within, within the temple. They often, if they were a man, they had to get circumcised as a way of sort of entering into some of those obedience of the, some of the things of the law of Moses. But then when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, haven't come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. And when he says fulfill it, he doesn't just mean I've come to, to, to do all the stuff. He means he is the end goal. He's the very thing to which all of it was pointing And this one who says, I am the fulfillment of all of these things, gives a mission to his people, saying, go make disciples of all nations. Or the way it's worded in Acts, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, all Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. As we've gone through the book of Acts, we've seen they're the things that happened in the early church starting with the massive number of people who came to faith that very first meeting at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We see the message going out into the surrounding geographical areas. Finally, after an encounter with God, as Peter is being told in no uncertain terms, don't call unclean what I have called clean, that he is being given a message to go to a Gentile man named Cornelius. We see the first person who is not ethnically Jewish come to trust in Jesus. Then it continued to expand. We saw the message was brought to Antioch, a large number of Jews at the synagogue and God-fearing Gentiles came to place their trust in Jesus. We saw them go through the island 
of Cyprus. We saw the ministry throughout Turkey. Again, a great number of people, both from Jewish background and from non-Jewish background, coming to place their trace in Jesus Christ. And everywhere that went, there was mixed responses. There was responses of rejoicing that God was making his salvation widely known and people were responding greatly to that. But there was also some resentment and anger. Some resentment towards, should God even be saving the Gentiles? But also some serious questions of, what does it mean to be a Gentile in the people of God in light of what Jesus has done. Now, if Christianity is to be the legitimate continuation of Judaism, if that was the foundation that all that Jesus did was built upon, how much of that applies to those who are not Jewish who come to trust in Jesus? If Jesus was the fulfilment or end goal of that law, how much, or if any of that, Was that required of these new Gentile believers? So when you think about that those who are Jewish who came to trust in Jesus, if their whole life has been wrapped around the law of Moses, it makes sense that when that's been their history back for 1,500 years, that they ask questions. What does this mean now that all of those people who are not ethnically Jewish are coming into a relationship with God? It's not like they pull out their New Testament out of their back pocket and go, oh, this is what it says here in Colossians or Ephesians. So as we go through these verses, we're going to ask the question, is anything else needed? And as they brought this discussion before a council, we see they come to a unanimous response. And then because they care for the people, they made sure they communicated that response. So is anything else needed? Is Jesus death and resurrection enough? Simple question. Simple answer is yes. Often you hear that regular statement, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And when it comes to your salvation, that's a true statement. You could possibly go into error if you said, well, Jesus and then I do nothing is everything I need for the Christian life would be a false way to interpret a statement like that. But Paul, who's gone and had this great ministry amongst the Gentile nations, was sent out from the church in Antioch. He'd come back, we saw at the end of chapter 13, and he encouraged the work that God had done through him and Barnabas and how God had opened up the door to ministry and salvation to the Gentiles. This is the church where these events are now taking place at the beginning of chapter 15. Now they're rejoicing at what God has done through them. And the objections which come up don't come up from the locals, but from some men who came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now things were starting to really go forward in a great mighty way. And now there's some telling these new converts, you aren't saved. Unless you do something else, your salvation you think you've got counts for nothing. That would be a little bit discouraging, wouldn't it? You've got no background in this God that you've come to believe in. You've come to believe, believe, you've been told you're saved. 
and someone else who has a Jewish background, who you presume knows things about God better than you do, tells you, you're not saved unless you do this. It's more than just saying, you're almost there, you've got another step. They've said to them, unless you do this one thing, everything you think you have is nothing. Now one of the difficult things of Acts chapter 15 is it's hard to place where do the events of Galatians chapter 2 fit in historically in the timeline of Acts. Most think that they are describing some of the things that are happening in the middle of what we see also here in Acts 15. For example, in Galatians 2, Paul speaks about when James, Cephas and John seemed to be pillars, believed the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and, and they should go to the circumcised. So most people are of the assumption that Paul and Barnabas have gone to Jerusalem, told them about what's going on, they've said, yep, we're all on board with you before this partic- returning to Antioch and this particular um, difficulty arises. So Peter, James and John, they're all on board with it. They're all on board with the idea that God has a plan for Gentiles and that Paul's mission to go take the Gospels to them to see many come to salvation. They think, thumbs up, we're all in favour of it. But most think that when we get to verses 11 to 16, now gives us some more details of this encounter that happened at Antioch. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. So Cephas is is Peter. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when when he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before all of them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law will no one be justified. So as these people have come from Jerusalem, it seems that both Peter and Barnabas have kind of been persuaded by some of this teaching. Now I've already seen Peter and Barnabas are all for gospel to the Gentiles, but they're figuring out this this finer terms of what does it mean for them to be included in the community of God's people. You need to remember, Paul was a Jew. Paul was like the Jew of the Jews, the Pharisee of the Pharisees. If anyone's going to have an inclination to go this direction, Paul's your man. Yet he publicly rebukes Peter and says, no, that is not the gospel. Gentiles don't need to live like they're Jews. We are justified by faith, not by works. Anything you add to the saving work of Jesus Christ is not just a little misunderstanding. It's a major taking away from what Jesus has done. You are saying that what Jesus did is not enough. 
It's insufficient. It's going so far to say that unless you do this extra thing, what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection counts for nothing. Paul stood his ground. We are saved by grace through faith, not by the things that we do. Paul once prided himself in the law. He said to the Philippians, when it comes to obedience to the law, I was blameless. Now the church which sent Paul on the mission to go out to the Gentiles, hearing this complaint, sends them down to Jerusalem where the complaint originally originated from and said, let's solve this issue. This is a big question. What are we going to do? What does it look like for a family of God's people, both from Jewish background and Gentile people? What does it mean for them to live in a one body, a one group of people who are God's children? And as they go down, it says they're welcomed by the entirety of the church, the apostles and the elders, and Paul and Barnabas give them a report of the things which had happened. Amongst those who were there, James and Peter, who, if Galatians 2 fits where we think it fits, had previously been rebuked, and Barnabas had also been led astray. And it looks like everyone's all on board. Everyone's received them so well, giving thanks for what God's doing through them amongst the Gentiles, until... The Pharisees, and presumably Pharisees who'd come to trust in Jesus, came on the scene. And now their claims have kind of even escalated. They're not just saying, you must be, be circumcised to be saved, and you must command them to obey all of the things in the law of Moses. So what is the response that comes as they meet together to discuss these things? Well, no surprise, like the initial... Um, conflict back in Antioch, there's great debate over this thing. When people have a difference of a view about things regarding the word of God, sometimes it does get a little bit heated because we all have an idea that we must deal with God's word carefully and faithfully. And in the middle of those discussions, probably no surprise, Peter's always pretty quick to get his hand up and have a crack. Peter stands up and gives a defence. First, recounting his own experience and what God had shown him. It says, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. It's like, it's been established amongst them. They know that God had said to Peter, You are going to take my gospel to the Gentiles, they'll believe. And we're all good with that. And God knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. He's like, remember, God called us to this. Remember, just as we were saved by grace, received by faith, that's exactly the gospel went to these Gentiles. They responded the same way. Just like we saw back in at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, just as we received the Holy Spirit, they received the Holy Spirit just like they did. God's making clear there's not us and them, there's not the class A Christians and the class B Christians, there is the children of God. He makes no distinction. These people who the Jews once perceived as being unclean 
people to avoid, Peter declares God has cleansed or purified their hearts by faith. So he says, why? Why are we going to lay a burden on them that even we couldn't keep? Or the way Paul expresses it later on, if the Old Testament law was able to save, Christ died needlessly. After Peter, Barnabas and Paul give their account of what God had done through them amongst the Gentiles, the way in which they responded in faith to Jesus Christ. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, who at this point in time seems to be the significant leader in the Jerusalem church, stands up and gives his account. Firstly, talking about how exists God who has called the people from amongst the Gentiles for his own name. He's using language that was exclusively used in the Old Testament for the Old Testament people of God of Israel and saying, applying that now to the broader sense for Gentiles who come into the community of God's people. And goes on to say, this isn't a new Peter thing. This isn't a new initiative of Paul and his ministry strategy. This is a God thing. The prophets have already spoken about this. And quoting from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 12, he says, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Old. Now he's speaking of a passage that is talking about the restoration of David's kingdom, the restoration of the temple. And he says, this is what God was talking about when he's bringing about a new community of God's people from both Jewish background and Gentile background brought into one body of God's people. Who collectively belong to the true Israel, who is Jesus. And in belonging to to Jesus and indwelt by his spirit are repetitively spoken of throughout the New Testament as being the temple of God. I know there are some circles that like to think that in order to fulfill prophecy you must rebuild a new temple in Jerusalem. But the testimony of the New Testament and of Jesus is, no you don't. That new temple that you are looking for is collectively in, in the people of God. So in light of all that's been said, in light of what they've seen, the testimony of what God has done among the Gentiles, in light of the referring back to the Old Testament foretold these things, James comes to the same conclusion. Don't make this any harder than it needs to be. Don't place a burden on them that's unnecessary. It might seem odd in verse 19 to say, don't trouble them. That the very next thing he says in verse 20, but you should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Does that seem a little bit odd? Don't trouble them with anything, but here's our recommendations. Sexual immorality is certainly taught um, something no good, start to finish the Bible, but the other three are kind of very much focused on things from Mosaic law. What's the go with that? 
I even wonder why the sexual immorality gets mentioned there because that's not just an Old Testament law thing, that's, that's Bible start to finish. Other than the fact that he's writing a letter to Gentile people whose pagan religions they've come out of are probably heavily involved in immoral sexual activity. So it became a primary thing to talk to them about that because in their mind that was part of how you express religious worship. But the other three were specific to Jewish food laws. Avoid things that have been sacrificed to idols. Avoid foods that have been strangled and avoid blood. Now, are these things that are supposed to be for Christians for all times? Like if I was to travel in certain countries of the world where probably because of their religion they might um, slaughter their meat in a particular way, do I have to go vego? How do I know how an animal was killed? Can I no longer have a medium rare steak? The answer to that first part of the question is, no, they're not being laid down as, as rules for all Christians for all time. In fact, if you look, if you looked at the very next verse, verse 21, it says, because amongst the Jews, the law of Moses is being read week after week. The whole thing, whole debate that's, that's surfed is about how do we bring Jewish and Gentile Christians together as one body and identifying that these guys are hearing this stuff week after week, let's not put a stumbling block in the way where they would look at you guys and say, no, you guys aren't. You guys are disrespecting God. They say, lay these things aside that you don't create offence, you don't cause a hindrance in bringing together these two people. Because in other parts of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 8, Paul makes a very clear statement, food sacrificed to idols really is worth nothing. It matters very little. The whole question about whether the animal was strangled is related to the thing about not eating blood because the blood doesn't get drained properly. Want to know the good news though? Even though science probably hadn't got there with it, that if you're a first century Gentile or even Jewish Christian, you could have a medium rare steak. Because when you cut into a steak, that red stuff that come out isn't blood. Sorry to spoil it for you. In the, I put something about that in the Facebook group during the week just for as a precursor. It's actually stuff called myoglobin that takes the oxygen into the muscles. So next time you think, oh no, I'm eating blood that's coming out, it's not. You can share that little bit of trivia around the table next time that happens. So in light of putting forward these recommendations, in light of the potential division and concern this is causing to the new Christians, how do you stop that? How do you stop that spreading and, and being detrimental to the church? The simple answer is they communicate it. You'll notice that despite all of the complaints that were brought before them, it says the church, the apostles, the elders were all in agreement in the resolution they reached. Which is a pretty conclusive outcome when you consider probably maybe all of them or close to all of them would have been from Jewish background. So it's not like they had an agenda to lead them in that direction. They could have just said, okay, we've come to our decision, we'll write it in our little doctrine book, we'll file it away in our little theology library, it's all sorted. Because good leadership's not just about maintaining good doctrine, 
Good leadership's about caring for people too. They were aware that there were new Christians who just come to trust in Jesus who were having people tell them, you're not really saved. And they had a deep concern to encourage these people what it means to be a child of God as a Gentile. And so they decided that we're going to put together a letter. We're going to send Paul and Barnabas, they're already familiar, but already also Judas and Silas, some significant Christian leaders, to come and deliver this message. Which went initially to Antioch, no surprise, that's where the issue broke out. But as you see when it's addressed, it's addressed to the other surrounding areas as well. It wasn't just the opinions of a few people who were there. In verse 25, you see a clear statement, they all came to one accord. It wasn't something like they brought it to their Baptist meeting and 51% voted for it, so they thought, oh, well, we'll have to go for that. And then they had their little fight over potluck lunch after that. I've got a Baptist background, I can make those gags. But then it also says in verse 28, for it not only seemed good to us, but it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. One of those passages you just wish there was a bit more detail. How do you know it seemed good to the Holy Spirit? Was it that, that they all came to a wonderful consensus in a way you wouldn't expect? Was it revealed to them some way? Is it because of the Old Testament quote, which obviously has come from the Holy Spirit? It doesn't tell us. We don't need to know. But with full support of all of the church in Jerusalem, the apostles, the elders, and the Holy Spirit, they send out a message and say, you know these guys who have come to you and they've unsettled you in your faith? Not only do we corporately disagree with what they said, they didn't come from us. You don't need to let that unsettle you. And no surprise, that was received with rejoicing. Because you would, wouldn't you? If you thought that your, your salvation that it was a wonderful thing, if you thought it was possibly not valid, to have that validated by the primary leaders of their church, not only would that be encouraging, also to know that I don't need to get circumcised without anaesthetic, that's probably quite encouraging as well. But while they were there, Judas and Silas, who were prophets, taught and encouraged them. Paul and Silas taught and encouraged them. Have you noticed that throughout the book of, book of Acts? Wherever God's people go, even if they've got a particular practical task, they always teach and encourage the word of God. So what? We're not first century Gentiles trying to form a church relationship with long-standing Jewish people. But there are two very relevant and ongoing applications. First one, be careful that you do not either explicitly or implicitly give the impression that someone must do something else other than faith in Jesus in order to be saved. Now it's very easy to say, oh, I would never do anything like that. Regrettably, I've seen a lot more of that than I would like in my Christian life. Usually it comes across in the way of statements like, if you really were a Christian, you either would have done this or you wouldn't have done this. I've even come across people who have got no Jewish background whatsoever who would say, unless you abide to Jewish food laws, you're not really a Bible-believing Christian. 
Or it might come across, if you drink, or if you dance, there, there's another good Baptist dig. If you watch television, you can't be a Christian. Or whether it's, whether it's a negative thing or a positive thing, saying you must do this, whenever you add to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you diminish it to nothing. You say, without this, Jesus' death and resurrection counts for nothing. I'd imagine he's quite offended by that. That doesn't mean that, as I said, it doesn't mean a person saved and expect nothing of them after that. The Bible's very clear, by their fruits they will know. James says, you know, faith without works is dead. They, the two go hand in hand. Or if you take the famous Ephesians passage about how we're justified, but saved by grace, not through works, he then goes on to say, to do the works that God prepared beforehand. So yes, we are. By their fruit, Christians will be known. But not by whether or not they match up to your personal convictions on things the Bible doesn't make clear statements about, will they be known. They're called to conform to Christ, not to personal preferences. Secondly, in God's church, God is calling people from all nations, all cultures. One day there will be that picture of every tongue, every tribe gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ in worship. And it's a wonderful and it's a beautiful picture. It's often said that a healthy church demographic should represent the demographic of the town in which we live in. And I'm sorry, Eastgate doesn't do that. Now, it's all, I know we all attract to like attracts like. It just works naturally in that sort of sense. But if God has placed you where he's placed you for his purposes, I think you'd find that if you look around your neighbourhoods, you look around your workplaces, you probably find that you are very much in the midst of a diverse environment. In my neighbourhood, both old house, new house, there are people who are very different than me. I'm sure in your workplaces there are people who are very different than you. And in our desire to want to see them know and trust Jesus, particularly if they've got a different religious background, we too might need to heed the wisdom that was provided to those Gentile believers. Don't do things that are going to be offensive or be a hindrance to your example and your witness of Christ to them. One of the verses of the Bible I always find really hard to deal with, Paul says, if it's going to cause offence, I would happily give up meat forever. No bacon, no steak ever again in my life if it's for the sake of reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if I was to be ministering amongst a Jewish people, I would happily, mostly happily, Stop eating bacon for the rest of my life. If that was going to be a hindrance, I value their eternal salvation far more than I value bacon. If I was ministering amongst a group of Mormons, I would happily surrender my coffee on a daily basis because my love for their eternal salvation is far more important than my love of coffee. Anyone who's ever done any missionary training or even for short-term missions, they always tell you about the culture that you're going to, what are some things that you shouldn't do that might be perfectly fine back home, they might not necessarily be biblical sin things, but just things that would be a hindrance to you communicating the gospel. 
all mission organisations do the same. But even though we don't have the same sort of training process, whether you go overseas or not, if you are a child of God, you are a missionary. You are a missionary in the place where you live right here and now, the places in which you work, and the same things apply. Have a look. Who do I live amongst? What is the culture that I'm amongst? What are some of the things that I might need, that I might be free to do, that I might willingly not do in order to be a hindrance, not to be a hindrance to the gospel? Because that's what you are. You are missionaries in your homes. You are missionaries in your workplaces. You are missionaries in your neighbourhoods. And as we close together in prayer, I'd like to pray for you as missionaries, local missionaries in those contexts. Heavenly Father, we have loved working our way through the book of Acts and seeing how it's not just through the work of key leaders and apostles and elders that people come to faith in Jesus. We've seen it happen through unnamed, unqualified, untitled people just sharing of what you have done in their life. Lord, you even tell us and we encounter in a couple of chapters. You've appointed our days, you've appointed the boundaries of where we live that people might seek and find you. Lord, for all of us in this room, you've called us to be missionaries in our homes, workplaces, neighbourhoods. That's not a light role. And God, we just want to bring them before you. We pray that you would send out your people in the confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the confidence the one who has all authority and said he will be with us till the end of the age, and confidence in the work of your spirit to still work in people to see the glorious good news of the gospel. So Lord, we, we give thanks for all of your children. That a minister is not just the role of someone who stands up the front on a Sunday, but it's a role that rightly applies to every single one of us. Help us to go forth in what you have entrusted to us. And Lord, let us encourage one another in those pursuits. Pray for, praying for one another is in the conversations that we'll have. And Lord, giving thanks for your work through the everyday people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to read ahead, uh, next week this is where we're looking for finishing off chapter 15 and